You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And today, before I begin, I want to remind you that there's a website associated with this podcast at wealthformula.com where you will find all sorts of additional resources, including various books you can download. You've got some webinars in there. You can also sign up for some important lists, such as our Investor Club list. Now, Investor Club is our group of accredited investors that if you're interested in potentially seeing uh, some deal flow in our private group, you can go to wealthformula.com and sign up for that list. Once you sign up, you'll go through an onboarding process and boom, you're an official member of Investor Club. Now, for today, I want to talk a little bit about taxes. Okay, well, this is a very, very big part of Wealth Formula, as you've figured out by now, because it's not just about what you make, how you make it, or whatever, but it's also how much you get to keep. And that's really the most important, right? If you make half a million bucks and, you know, 200, 200 grand is going to the taxes, then, well, you actually make 300 grand. You don't make, you don't make 500 grand. So, you know, if you want to build wealth quickly, you've got to learn as much about tax mitigation as you can. That's probably the biggest lesson that I've learned um, through these, you know, this last decade of more than a decade now where I've been out of training and actually making some money. And that is absolutely critical. But the issue is that most of these mitigation opportunities are in the world of real estate and business. You know, they're not really in the world of the W-2 employee. There are some exceptions to this, of course, uh, and there are creative and you know, and legal ways to mitigate taxes for W-2 employees as well, just not that many. And um, the thing is that even though there are some that sound pretty compelling, uh, it is also important to understand that sometimes uh, you might be better off staying away and paying the tax. You know, I learned that the hard way myself by investing in oil and gas in multiple years about a decade ago. Oil and gas, of course, always comes up for high paid W-2 employees, especially those with good CPAs. Because listen, I mean, from the perspective of the CPA, the law is compelling because you can deduct if, you know, most, if not all of the investment you make in the first year. So, hey, who, who doesn't want that in an investment and getting money back? Well, there's the problem, Right. The problem is that oil and gas investing by nature is quite risky. And that's one of the things you have to remember after you're, you know, again, after all, you're essentially a speculator and you're hoping that your team of speculators, whoever's trying to do that for you, hits a well. Now, the other bad news about oil and gas, which I have learned over the years, is that it's also ripe with fraudsters and charlatans. And that is unfortunate. I think, but it just is. And I think the nature of it is that it is something that's kind of, it's obviously tangible, but it's, for an investor, it's almost intangible, right? Like you're going to go out and you're going to drill some wells. It's not like, hey, we're going to go, you know, buy this $50 million apartment building, right? That That's not what this is. It's like, we're going to take this money and we're going to go and drill some wells and all that kind of thing. And so, I mean, it, it's it's sort of like the perfect place for fraudsters to hang out bottom line is unfortunately after multiple investments in oil and gas uh, almost a decade ago i haven't 
even come close to recovering my money on any of the investments. Now, and those were people who were not fraudsters necessarily. They were, you know, they, they just didn't make any money. So anyway, my opinion, you're better off paying the tax or, you know, paying to charity or doing something like that uh, over oil and gas. So that's my opinion. I'm not giving you any advice, but that's, you know, even up to a few years ago, uh, even up to a couple years ago, I was still having people on the show for this because of the demand for this, but I will not do it anymore. Uh, fortunately, there are a few other handful of opportunities available that don't rely on speculation or, or trusting, you know, P.T. Barnum types. And, uh, for example, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, if you guys are regular, if you're a re- regular to the show, you might listen to this guy talking about short-term rentals, okay? If I was a W-2 guy, I'd be all over that. And um, you can hear Tom Wilwright explain that and back up what that other guy said today, which I think was very helpful. Ultimately, though, and you've got some other opportunities, too, and um, Tom will talk about that in our show today, but you got to figure out a long-term plan that potentially can transform your W-2 income into non-W-2 income. We've had a show on this before with Tom Wheelwright. In order to accomplish a complex strategy like this, though, you, you got to have a good CPA. This is not, you know, it's like those uh, do not try this at home things. It, it doesn't work. You've got to have good help. Obviously, you know, Tom Wheelwright, as you may know, is a great CPA. Um, and uh, he's got great ideas. He's, he's, uh, his book has been extraordinarily influential on me, the, the first one, Tax-Free Wealth, which I think is a must-read. So while you figure out what you're going to do to get your tax plan together, take time to listen to this week's episode of Wealth Formula Podcast, where Tom will update us on important new tax laws and also give us some free tips on how to lower our tax bills, and we'll have that after these messages. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is well known to the show. He is Tom Wheelwright. Tom is, of course, best known for his seminal work. I will call it a fantastic best book on taxes you'll ever read, Tax-Free Wealth. And uh, he has followed up with another book called The Win-Win Wealth Strategy. Uh, Tom, welcome back to Wealth Formula Podcast. Buck, always good to be with you. Love, uh, love what you're doing. Love your group. Thank you. And you know, uh, we, for those of you who are watching this on YouTube, you might notice that Tom and I think alike when it comes to taxes. And it also seems that we are dressing the same these days too. <laughs> and this wasn't planned. We just happened to be wearing almost an identical outfit. Uh, at any rate, a good taste there, Tom. Um, there you go. So, Tom, you've been on the show many times, and the first thing I think it's always useful to talk about uh, is, you know, since we last, you know, last year now, it's 2023 now, and and there's been some changes that are of significance in the tax laws. So why don't we start with that? Yeah, for sure. So um, particularly in real estate, there have been uh, actually, I think, two the two biggest changes in the real estate area, the first, of course, is the bonus depreciation change, where we're now starting to decrease every year the amount of bonus depreciation by 20%. So up through 2022, we had five years of 100% bonus depreciation for land improvements and the contents of the building. And beginning in 2023, it's 80% 
then 2024, it'll be 60% goes to 40, 20, and zero. So we're going to continue to see this decline, which uh, will certainly give some people some urgency yeah. from a tax standpoint for investing in real estate. Yeah. And, um, you know, obviously we still have cost segregation, so that's still helpful. But uh, it, t- tell me, at what point do you think, I mean, I, I did the numbers on this a few days ago, but it seemed to me that, you know, just throwing out some generic numbers like 70% LTV and, you know, a million dollar purchase and you're selling for 2 million or whatever. At this point, it's not necessarily as entirely clear whether you should, um, you know, just use bonus depreciation and buy a new property and get your 80% uh, depreciation off COSSEC or do a 1031 exchange. So I know that was sort of a mouthful for people listening, but basically the question I have is, I mean, with a hundred percent bonus depreciation last year and the year before, there really was no reason to do a 1031 exchange that I could certainly pencil out. Is there yeah, now? It, it, it was actually pretty rare that a yeah. 1031 exchange made sense right. um, prior to this year. Um, now it's going to be closer. Yeah. Okay. I, I think next year it's going to be, you know, we're going to see more 1031 exchanges. We may even see some more this year. Um, but I, I think it's still, I mean, you're still talking about upwards of 20 to 25% of the property being depreciated in the first year. So with 80%. So I yeah. still think that for most people, they're going to see a higher return from a tax standpoint with bonus depreciation than 1031. But of course, I always recommend that you sit down with your accountant sure. and run the numbers because yeah. it, it depends on your situation. Yeah. And I should point out, and we'll, we'll talk about this towards the end, but you know, all the things that we're going to talk about today are, you know, large, big scope ideas at a high level and anything that you need to have drilled down on, you need to have somebody good work with you. Uh, bonus depreciation was a big one. Is there, what other, what other changes to the uh, tax law do you think would be a, a, a useful to note? Well, I, I think the other big one is actually the deduction for meals. Okay. Um, remember in 2021 and 2022, they changed the rule from 50% of business meals to 100%. But that is now reverted to 50%. So you go out with a client, you go out with a business associate and have a meal at a restaurant. Uh, no longer is that 100% deductible. Now it's only 50% deductible. So that might... Uh, you, you, you might change where you go. You you go out to dinner yeah. for lunch, but yeah. uh, it definitely it's definitely going to have an impact. Yeah, certainly, it certainly would, especially if you eat a lot, right? I mean, the- <laughs> or, or or you buy expensive wine, right? Exactly, something like that. Um, you know, there are certain tax avoidance strategies that you know were fairly, I would say, controversial. They were they made the. IRS list of, you know, the, what do they call it? The, the watch list, the dirty dozen, the, the dirty dozen and all that. And there's a couple things that were on there for many years, conservation easements specifically, uh, especially, and then captive insurance. Um, these types of things have been in heavy scrutiny over the last year or two. Um, can you tell us if there's any resolution or any guidance on these types of things by now? Absolutely. We actually do have a major change in the conservation easement space. Let's start with captives. 
So uh, captive insurance, for those of you who don't know, is the um, really when you set up an insurance company of your own, and then that insurance company pools with other similar insurance companies and to, to establish a risk pool, and then you pay premiums into that pool. Um, the reason for, behind it is that there are just certain um, certain things that are so expensive to insure that you really want to self-insure, but you would like to actually set the money aside and the government would like you to set the money aside. So we have what's called uh, section 831B of the Internal Revenue Code, which says, look, if you do set up that insurance company, then the premiums are deductible so long as they're reasonable and they're not taxable to the insurance company. And that's where the big tax benefit is. Now the IRS came out a few years ago and they said, wow, this, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of abuse in here. They had a couple of court cases, really bad facts. And they started going after captives and now pretty much go after every captive that they find. A um, couple of things that have changed though is last year, uh, we got a ruling down from the courts that said, um, that for captives that they did not follow the process properly for uh, requiring you to file this form 8886, which is what highlights that you have a captive. Now they did say, well, this only applies to this taxpayer. However, um, you would have a pretty good argument still until they go back through that process. You still have a pretty good argument if they came after you for not filing an 8886 to say, wait a minute, we've got this court decision that says you guys didn't do it right. We're going to take this to court. They'll, I, I would expect they will concede. Um, but the IRS still wants you to file the 8886. So that's where you highlight the issue. Um, just so, because so you just for it, clarity there, the, yeah. the, the, the I'm, so I'm I'm a little confused. So the the courts say that they should not have that ability necessarily to flag. I mean, you shouldn't have to flag Correct. yourself for this. Correct. But remember, yeah. a court case applies to that taxpayer. Okay, got it. Got right it. Mm -hmm. now, it's precedent, which right. means that um, other taxpayers should be able to rely on that. Got However, it. the IRS has been very clear. They're still going to assess penalties if you don't file an 8886. So you're going to have to fight it. So how, so can, they, they how want, can they do they that? They want you to fight it. Well, they can, you know, it's kind of like, how does President Biden wipe out $400 billion of student loan debt? Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. When the courts clearly have said, you know, it seems like there's no way the courts yeah. are going to agree with that. Well, this is kind of the same type of a deal. Hmm. So um, while I think it's improper, I'm, I may think it's improper and illegal for the IRS to do it. The IRS is the 800 pound gorilla in the room. And we just have to respect that they are going to force the issue with you. If you take that position and mm -hmm. don't file that 8886. Um, now conservation easements um, actually had a bigger change because they actually had a change in the law. So beginning with two, 2022, conservation easements, they said going forward, if you have a conservation easement, um, you're not allowed to deduct more than two and a half times the cost of the property. Okay. Now that's not, I, I want to be really clear. It's not two and a half times the investment made by the investors. So again, a conservation easement is where you have a piece of land and um, the uh, 
the, the owner of the land decides that rather than develop the land, which they could do, they're going to set it, set aside an easement for it, donate the easement to a conservation um, charity, and therefore it can never be developed. And so that reduces the value of the land and that difference between what it would be worth if you developed it and the cost and, and, and the cost of the land, that's or the value that, excuse me, the difference between the value of the land, if you could have developed it, and the value of the land without being able to develop it is a charitable contribution deduction to the owners. Well, um, for years, as we've talked about on this show, Buck, um, investors have been able to invest in a, in a property and then the, then the, the partnership, if you will, then turned over a conservation easement, put a conservation easement and made that donation. And a lot of times that was four or five times the investment the investors made. Well, the new law says they don't restrict it to four or five times your investment or two and a half times your investment. They restrict it two and a half times the cost of the land, which may be um, a lot less than two and a half times your investment because they're the IRS is still going after these. So even though they changed the law to what the IRS wanted, the IRS is still pursuing it. And we don't know how hard they'll pursue the new ones. We know that current, anything be um, through 2022 is automatically being audited. The conservation easement partnerships are automatically being audited. So everyone without exception is being audited. And then of course the goal is um, what's uh, is that, you know, you end up settling at something and the IRS settles or you end up taking it to court and the courts have actually been, um, it depends on the court, but especially um, uh, the 11th circuit in Georgia has been very favorable to taxpayers. And so I, I do think it's one of those things where I think there are a lot more conservation easements are going to win. Mm-hmm. I think the IRS is eventually going to just have to settle them out at um, a much higher donation values than they thought they would. And, uh, and, and then I, hopefully they'll really just do normal audits on the new ones that are at two and a half times um, the cost. But again, remember that's two and a half times the cost of the land, right. not two and a half times your investment. So if money's being set aside to handle legal matters and audits and administration, et cetera, that doesn't count in that two and a half times. So, you know, there was a big, uh, there was a lot of fear from a number of, of people that I talked to who had invested these in the past um, and say they had four and a half, five X valuations mm-hmm. and deductions they had. And at, at one point there was some talk about there being um, essentially the ability uh, to go back and, um, you know, apply that new law or whatever, you know, that two and a half maximum automatically to, easements that were done before that law was in place. Um, and as I understand it, that's not really, you. they're not going to do that. That's correct. The new law was very specifically not retroactive. It was perspective only. So the IRS, they can audit all those old partnerships, but they right. can't apply that two and a half times rule to yeah. those partnerships. Well, at least that's some good news, right? It so. is. Well, we've got some clarity, which is good news. Yeah. Um, is there, is there anything else that I think that sticks out to you about, uh, tax laws right now that are in flux that might change soon or things that you've got your eye on? Well, I, 
The, the, the one actually that sticks out that I think we are going to see is I do think we're going to see the research and development tax credit be changed back to the way it was. So um, for those of you who don't know, in 2017, in Trump's tax bill, they actually eliminated the ability to both write off your research and development costs and take a research and development tax credit. Okay. You either got the full credit and had to amortize or you got the full deduction and didn't get the credit. So what they're working on right now is they're trying to find a bill um, and they think they've got a couple of bills that they can do this with. They've, they're trying to find a bill to attach this to where um, they've got bipartisan support, uh, which they need, obviously, and will be able to pass um, the cor really correct this back to the way it used to be, which is the way we need it to be, which is you get to deduct your R&D expenses and you get the tax credit um, because otherwise we're on such an uneven footing with the rest of the world that uh, it really puts us at yeah. a disadvantage with, from technology. You know, how does, uh, you know, so I've never actually used R&D credits in any sort of way. And how, can you give us an example of how like a small business, like, you know, mom and pop thing, and we're not talking sure. about anything scientific or whatever. Um, how, how would you apply R&D uh, to, to a typical small business. I'll give you, I'll give you two examples. Um, one is you might be in an industry that is ripe for technology development and you decided we're going to develop the technology. So you go out and you actually build software to handle a technology, a, a, a service issue basically that was being done by hand. And now you think you can do it better with computer equipment right? Mm -hmm. Through, through, through an app or through uh, software, really through a software. And that's one case where the R and D credit is absolutely available. And that's pretty clear. Another one is you might've developed, um, you know, one of your advantages might be that you have processes that you use that your competitors don't have. Well, developing those processes, as long as there's some scientific or engineering aspect to it, can actually qualify for research and development tax credit. So I, I do think there are a lot more small businesses that qualify for the R&D credit than um, small businesses that might not otherwise think they qualify might actually qualify. Mm, interesting. Um, you know, one of the, one of the topics that comes up all of the time because of the nature of my audience, a lot of doctors and a lot of, uh, you know, high paid professionals in general who unfortunately um, receive a, a paycheck, a W-2. And they always ask me, well, you know, can you have a show on where you talk about you know, things that you can do if you're a W-2? And, and I know the answer is generally not a whole lot, but there are a few things. You know, there are. I, I, I'd, give, I'd give you three answers to that. Yeah. Um, the first is the most obvious answer that's been around since 1986, which is oil and gas, yeah. right? Um, you can invest in oil and gas development property and uh, you, you can be an employee and you can get up to $500,000 of write-off against your W-2. If you have more than 500000 it carries forward as a net operating loss. To is that following year. bonus depreciation? Is that the same thing? Uh, no, it's intangible drilling costs. Okay. So oil and gas is unique. Um, in that all of the work that goes in to drilling a well 
including all the labor and everything, is deductible immediately. Um, you don't have to capitalize it to the well. Um, the equipment, you do have bonus depreciation on. So that's, you know, whatever the amount of the equipment is. But normally the equipment is only about 20% of the cost of drilling a well. So the 80%, which represents intangible drilling costs, or what we, we commonly refer to as IDC, that gets deducted the very first year. And in fact, can be deducted the year before you do it if you drill by March 1st. And um, so you can actually go into a deal on December 31st and they drill in February and you get that 80% in December. Um, so that's actually an advantage that nobody else has. And on top of that, you can be a completely passive investor. So you have to be a general partner. You can't be a limited partner. You can't hold it through in a limited liability company or a limited partnership. But you can be, if you're a general partner, no matter how much insurance they might put on to limit your liability, if you're a general partner and you own it individually, you can absolutely um, take that deduction. But again, only up to 500000 because we have this excess business loss limitation on wages. My problem with oil and gas is I've never made money, so it might as well just be a deduction. <laughs> that is the biggest question. That is the biggest issue, and it is. It is. You do have to remember that it's a depleting resource. It's not yeah. like real estate that is appreciating value. Oil and gas typically wells don't appreciate in value; they actually deplete. Um, the second one, um, which is uh, fairly new, is um, the solar activity. So solar credits. Uh, just the credit portion, not the depreciation portion, but solar credits are available to investors regardless of whether they're passive or active. So they're not subject to the passive loss rules that depreciation is or real estate is. Um, the credit portion, and it's a 30% credit now, is um, is is a dollar for dollar tax benefit. And that is not limited by that excess business loss rule. So you you really could wipe out your tax liability with solar energy credits um, uh, if you invested in a solar energy deal. Interesting. So have you seen much of that? I haven't seen, I haven't seen a whole lot of- Starting stuff. to see it. It's just, we're just starting to see it. Now, where mm -hmm. I think that, that um, it works the best is either on your own building because then you're not passive in your own building, right? You're, yeah. you're using your building. You've got your practice in your building, for example. Um, but again, this isn't for employees, but you know, it's either on your own building or, or a rental property. Yeah. And then you get both the credit 30% credit, but you also get a deduction that's equal to about 65% of the cost of the solar. So uh, let me give you an so example. Could you actually make money? <laughs> this yeah, you actually can. You actually can. I'll, I'll give okay. you a quick example. Yeah. So let's say you put $100,000 of solar and you went out and you borrowed $50,000. So you borrowed 50% of that. Um, and you would get a $30,000 credit. So that brings your investment from 50 because you're borrowing 50. So 50 down to 20. And then you would get a $65,000 deduction, which effectively you would be net positive right. um, the, day, the day you put it in service. Now, that one you do have to be, that would be passive with respect to the deduction, just not respect to the credit. So that's an important distinction. Um, and of course, all rental real estate is subject to the passive activity rules. So one of the things we do want to consider is 
Okay, we have two choices with passive activity, and we've talked about this many times, Buck. And one is either you or your spouse can be a real estate professional, Mm -hmm. um, which means that you're spending more time in real estate than you are your other jobs. And it also means you're spending um, more than 750 hours a year in real estate, or you can um, have passive income to offset that passive loss. And that would be investments and simply other passive activities. So those are really your two choices. If you're a W-2, really your choice is, can my spouse, I mean, the logical thing is, can my spouse be a real estate professional? And if they can be a real estate professional, we still only get to offset 500,000. Remember, we still have this excess business loss limitation uh, that came about last year. And that loss limitation means that anything more than the 500,000, that loss gets carried over to the next year as a net operating loss. So it's, it's really a one-year push, um, but you do have to re- realize you can't offset all of your income from a W-2, even if your spouse is a real estate professional. Um, I had a guy on recently, Tom, I think he was on your show too. He was basically talking about, um, he, he was talking about air. Airbnb type stuff, like, like Mm -hmm. short-term rentals. And, um, you know, he, he, he mentioned some pretty profound, uh, you know, possibilities for W2, uh, deductions. Um, you know, if if you have these short-term rentals and I was thinking if I was a W2, I'd probably like, based on what he said, I mean, I don't know if it's true or not, um, I, I would probably start investing in a bunch of these uh, short-term rentals. Can you talk a little bit about the short-term rental advantages? Uh, yeah, so, or- so they're different than long-term rentals. So long-term rental is by definition passive, okay? Right. And you have to have, you have to be real estate professional to overcome that, you or your spouse. Short-term rentals are not considered rental real estate. So they're still real estate. They're just not considered rental real estate. They're more in the nature of a hotel. And so they're treated as a regular business, which means that you don't have to have more time doing the short-term rentals than you do in your regular day job, but you do have to have 500 hours. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you still have to meet the regular passive activity rules, which is the 500 hour test, but you don't have to meet the real estate rental rules of 750 hours. So that means and, and more and and more in rent, more in real estate than your other job. So that means you could literally have a full time job, and if you're willing to put in 500 hours into your short term rentals, you would be able to use those losses, you know, from the short term rentals from the bonus depreciation to offset up to five hundred thousand dollars of your yeah. W two income. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. um, and that's to me it's it's uh, something I actually didn't really know and understand. And, and that's my fault in part because I feel like I'm not W2, so I don't look for these exactly. <laughs> these types of things. But you get that all year. <laughs> you know, but this is this is pretty uh pretty profound. I mean, so just as a as a follow-up on that, so if you have when you talk about the I think it was five hundred hours and you have can can you can that be an accumulation from multiple Airbnb properties and what kind of work does it need to be? It it can, because you can aggregate um, all of your properties because they're all under the same management. Mm -hmm. They're all uh, the same ownership. And it's pretty simple election to aggregate all of your properties. So it's not each individual properties, as long as you make the election to aggregate. Now you still have to aggregate them. Um, But if you do, 
uh, you should be pretty safe. Now, you can't just be an investor. So you, you can't just go hire a management company yeah. and say, you go do all the work and I'm just going to buy the properties and I'm going to, I'm, and I'm going to do the bookkeeping. That's not enough. You actually have to do some, some actual work on the properties. Mm -hmm. um, you either have to manage them or, um, you know, co collect the rent or, you know, do the advertising, the marketing. Most of the people I know who do this, um, and I do have many clients who do Airbnb and they do it successfully. Um, uh, they're, they're actually pretty much, they're, they're spending good hours and they're really running yeah. the property. Yeah. So they're in charge. They're in charge. So they're the ones putting up the ads on Airbnb. They're the ones making sure they're, they're, a, you know, a super host and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, um, but, and just to be clear, what we're talking about here again is the ability to, if you, if you meet those criteria, do a cost segregation analysis, apply bonus depreciation, and then offset W-2 income with that. That's, that's correct. correct. Again, that's, to me, that's that's a very good opportunity for people who are willing to do it. And frankly, if you think about how much you could offset in taxes based on that, it'd probably be worth the hours, you know, to do. Yeah, consider if you're in a 40% tax rate, you're talking about roughly $200,000 yeah. of tax reduction up, yeah. up to right? Yeah. It's some pretty good numbers. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool. How about uh, one, one other thing I want to talk about is, is there any changes in the um, estate tax laws? Not yet. Okay. Um, and th th we have had no changes. There are lots of threats, but no changes. Um, I honestly don't think it, uh, you know, we've got a split you know, yeah. split government right now. So I don't think we're going to see anything before 2025. Yeah. Um, it does phase out, by the way, this uh, $12 million, $24 million exclusion does phase out. You know, it reverts back to the old, basically half of that. When, when? Uh, uh, 2026 <laughs> or 2027. I'm, I, I, okay. I can't. Never can no, keep I my, put you my the spot right. there. Okay. But yeah. it's one of those two years. Okay. And, and then it reverts back. So I, I do think people should still be paying attention to it because you want to use up that exclusion when you know it's there because yeah. it's not likely to get better. Right. Yeah. There's still this big, you know, there's still a lot of discussion about tax the rich. The rich don't pay enough tax. Um, you know, Biden's still after uh, doing that. We've got the new IRS auditors that are going after, um, after, you know, wealthy individuals. Yeah. So, you know, we still have to pay really close attention to it. It's, it's not something that I think, um, I, I do think it's going to be a fight. Um, when that does come up in a few years, I do think, I, I think it's going to be a knockdown drag out fight between the parties. How about in terms of the various, um, you know, trusts, like, I mean, there was some, uh, there was some talk a while back about, you know, currently like, you know, the estate tax is referred to by some as, is, you know, the dumb tax or the stupid yeah. tax because essentially <laughs> what, <laughs> yeah, because essentially the way to uh, potentially, and again, I'm not a tax or legal authority, but just, you know, from my understanding is, okay, just get it out of your estate. What does that mean? Uh, it means basically having irrevocable trust, uh, you know, that maybe you're, you're, you're still ultimately managing, but it's not, you don't own it anymore. And that's really what you need to do. Although you're paying the tax on that. Um, and so the question, I guess there was some question, a, uh, a year or two ago 
as I recall, there was some po- some people bringing up this idea that if you're paying the tax on that still, then you know it it shouldn't really be it should be part of your estate. Right, but they 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 didn't pass any of that, so none of yeah. that got passed. We're we're still safe on that. Um, this is what base a lot of estate planners have done over the years is they say, well, we want you to still be taxed on because that gets even more money out of your estate. Yep. Now you don't have to be, right? I mean, either the trust can be taxed on it, or your kids, yep. um, your beneficiaries could be taxed on it. You get to choose on that, but you still get to choose. So that has not changed. You're right. There have been a lot of proposals. Remember, we've had a wealth tax proposal. We've had wealth tax proposals recently by several of the high tax states, and none of that has happened. And none of it likely will happen Mm -hmm. um, in the next few years. But remember, there is a downside to getting it out of your state because when you get it out of your state, you don't get the basis step up at Mm -hmm. death. So that means that you don't want to get more out of your estate than you have to. Yes. And this is the challenge. And this is why people are wondering, what do I do? And so here's, because if it's going to go back to 6 million, I want to get the 12 million out, right? I want to yeah. make sure that I'm covered. But if it's going to stay at 12 million, I don't want to get the 12 million out. I want to get everything over 12 million out, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. the 12 million, I want to get the basis step up because I'm not going to have any estate tax anyway. So right now, this time this is the time to actually set up trusts. You don't have to fund them right now. And, and I think that's actually the, the hard work is getting the trust set up the way you want them mm-hmm. to. It takes a lot of attorney time. Yeah. It takes a lot of your time and your spouse's time. And, uh, and, and it's worthwhile doing, even if you only fund a few million dollars yeah. for now. Yeah. And then later on, you know, if they, if they're going to change it, and you see that there, you know, that there's discussion about this, then fund it heavily. But mm-hmm. you, you're not going to be able to make all those changes. You know, if everybody's clamoring for the estate planning attorneys, your chances of getting it done at that point are pretty low. So I would start doing it right now. So when you're transferring, uh, when you're transferring over that money to a trust currently, is there a, a maximum amount that you can give to that trust Uh or, or is that not really an issue? Yeah, right, right now it's $12 million. Okay, so per it's per. the same as, okay, got it. So it's 12, oh, that's right, 12. 12. So it's basically the, so that's where you've got that whole dilemma. Like right. if you have too much money, like, okay, yeah, you, you get zeroed out on the basis, but you're, uh, but then you're going to have a huge, you have a huge potential problem for your kids because they'll probably right. have to sell a property in order to pay the taxes on it. Right. right. And, and they'd have a huge income tax. So, right. so the question is, you're really trading income tax for estate tax. Right. And right now that the tax rates are pretty, pretty close to the same. Right. Mm-hmm. So you'd rather not have, you, you really, you know, the concern is you want to also get appreciation out of your estate. Right. So you don't want just the current value. You want the future value out of your estate. So now you just do the planning. That's all. Well, uh, that is really good stuff. And obviously, you know, we could keep going on and on, but I want to talk a little bit about, um, uh, you know, the books and, and some of the things that you're doing. Obviously, the, um, you know, Tax-Free Wealth was uh, a really influential book for me. Um, it's on my reading list, so to speak, uh, on the website, Recommended Things. I think it's, it, it is must-reading in personal finance. And you talked a little bit, uh, last time about the win-win wealth strategy, but can you um, give us a little summary of of what that's about for people who might be interested? 
Yeah. So, so people actually asked me, why did I write the win-win wealth strategy when the, you know, tax for wealth, is such a popular book and still, still number one bestseller said, well, for two reasons. One is there are still a lot of people who think that avoiding taxes is unpatriotic or bad for you. And the win-win wealth strategy, one of the primary uh, goals with this book is, is to really prove. And I think it does prove that, um, Tax incentives are good for the government. They're not just good for the person, for the taxpayer. There, it is a win-win. The, the government wins and the taxpayer wins. So that was number one. Number two is I wanted to show that really the tax laws are very similar from country to country. So we actually have charts and tables for 15 countries and show how similar they are. The third is I want to show people not just how to reduce taxes, but how to build wealth while not paying taxes. So that's why we call it the win-win wealth strategy is we've actually looked at seven different categories of investments and said, look, these are seven categories of investing that the government favors. And they favor it so much that if you invest this way, you're gonna build wealth much faster than you would if you did the traditional stock market, stocks and bonds investing. Okay, so, um, you know, you look at things like business and real estate and, and energy and agriculture, you know, all of these items, these are things the government really wants you to do. And if you do them, you not only pay less tax, but they're also, if you look at wealthy individuals, everybody who's built massive amounts of wealth has done it in one of these ways. Yeah. Nobody's done it by buying and diversifying a stock portfolio. Nobody, nobody makes billions of dollars buying and diversifying a stock portfolio. Yeah. You can do okay. Um, but you can, but you just can't build them the yeah. kind of wealth that you do with these seven strategies. And that's why we, we really looked at these areas um, to show that it's not just about reducing your taxes. It's also about building wealth. Um, obviously these strategies can get fairly complex it is not a do-it-yourself, you know, do not do this at home uh, by yourself type thing. Uh, and that brings up wealth ability. Uh, what is wealth ability and how can we uh, learn more? Well, thank you, Buck. That's very generous of you. Um, you know, we decided, my partner and I, um, we had a big CPA firm. You actually um, knew quite well. And we decided to sell that CPA firm because uh, basically, actually, in part because of your um, request, you, you and I had this conversation. You said, well, look, there's a lot of people who can't afford that CPA firm. And so could you, you know, is there a way that you could have other CPA firms that could handle a, a wider range of clients? And so we, what we did was we, um, about four years ago, started developing a network of CPA firms and training that network of independent CPA firms. And now we have 65 um uh, uh, accounting firms, um, mostly CPA firms around the country and even one in Canada where we can literally conserve any level of client except those that might have need the big four yeah. um, accounting firms like Ernst & Young. So mm -hmm. we can serve any entrepreneur. We can serve from somebody who's just starting out and, uh, you know, just needs the, the initial uh, you know startup type work all the way up to the most sophisticated entrepreneur and investor. And um, that was our goal. We're, th we're there right now. We're, of course, continuing to build out that network. We'd, uh, uh, we'd, we'd like to be in the thousands, not, yeah. not just the hundreds of firms, um, but, but we're actually growing quite rapidly. And so it's, um, it's just one of those things where 
you know, you have to have a, 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 a the problem with um, the independent CPA firm is they don't have a system and they don't have people to go to. Um, they, they're just on their own. And so you don't really want to hire just an independent CPA without any support. Um, but you don't want to hire a big firm because then you just get, you know, a lot of, it's kind of like, we call it cheesecake factory. It's kind of like you get a big menu at a pretty reasonable price, mm-hmm. but it's pretty yeah. average food. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a pretty average situation. So what you really want is you want the personal attention of an independent CPA that can rely on other CPAs as well assist, uh, you know, have a system and we have a wealth ability system for reducing taxes and building wealth that we, we actually require all of our independent CPAs to use. Well, I will say those avocado rolls, the uh, egg rolls at uh, CB, uh, at Cheesecake Factory are really quite good, actually. So, um, <laughs> you anyway. got to pick and choose what you're going to get, though. <laughs> um, so let's. Uh, so how how do we get in touch with? I mean, a number of uh, our listeners already have, but if mm-hmm. if people are interested in um, talking to someone about potentially finding a wealthability uh, CPA, how do they do that? Uh, simply go to wealthability.com and just say you want to schedule a call. And what we'll do um, for your for your people, uh, Buck, is we'll actually review your prior year tax returns and let you know if we find anything that we, we think that there are opportunities. And if there aren't any opportunities, we'll let you know that too. I should point out too that if you do that, make sure you let them know that you're from this show because I think there is for a sure. little, little bit um, – different level of complexity that, you know, people who are listening to this show often have uh, compared to, you know, some others. So, so I think it's useful and everybody there knows us and uh, what we talk about. So they, they'll, they'll get it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, Tom. So uh, it's always great to have you back on the show and uh, I want to thank you for your time. Always happy to be with you, Buck. And uh, I I love, I love your uh, listeners. Um, I've met many of them. And they're absolutely great people and really wanting to learn more. And I I think what you're doing is amazing because you're really, you know, reaching out and giving financial education to people who don't get it in school. They don't get it otherwise. And I think what you're doing is, is very admirable. And I appreciate it. Well, thanks, Tom. We will be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Here's the takeaway messages. First of all, there are a few ways to mitigate tax liability uh, that are legal and not necessarily terribly risky, right? And uh, Tom talked about a couple of those. Now, I don't know that much about the solar route, um, and I haven't seen any uh, potential opportunities uh, that you know I would invest in myself or you know have uh, exposure to Investor Club to as of now, but maybe, maybe that'll come up. But I do like this. Um, I do like the short-term rental option as well. I think that's great. So that's one thing. The other thing is that, as although you know, tax mitigation is extraordinarily important for you know building wealth. It's also important to not let the tax wag the tail. In other words, I think if you invest in something, you want to also make sure that it's something that you think is going to be a great investment for you, right? You don't want to just invest because it's going to save you some tax dollars. And I think for me, that's why, uh, honestly, I had had invested in oil and gas in the past. I didn't know anything about it, and I wasn't really expecting to make a ton of money. I just figured, well, if I get my money uh, back, I'm fine. Well, I never got my money back. So you have to pay attention 
to the investment itself. It's not just a matter of saving on tax. You have to make sure that you look at the investment first on its own merits. And then, of course, you can certainly do that basing the direction in which you're looking for things uh, in any tax mitigation frame of mind. I think that's important. That's what I do. But don't let the tax wag the tail. That's the other major message I can convey to you. And and that's my opinion. Of course, nothing I tell you is uh, professional advice. Of course, (laughs) don't let the tax wag the tail is probably not something you would you would take me to court on or something like that. But anyway, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.